and welcome to episode 97 of the Survivor's Guide to Life podcast. Today uh, you're going to have a treat because uh, a couple of weeks ago Peter and I had a Zoom conversation with Tamar Alexis Woon, who is a hospice nurse in Florida, and she is the nurse, angel nurse, uh, who's overseeing uh, the care for Peter's mom, Pauline. And we had a great talk with her, and today we're going to share part of that with you. So hello and welcome to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm Jenny Stevenson, your host, and joining me is Dr. Peter Bernstein, or Peter, as he likes to be called. I do. Peter's a coach and mentor with 50 years of experience helping people in the field of trauma recovery. Our podcast provides practical information and skills for resilience and personal growth during challenging times. And above all, we want to inspire our listeners, you, to find hope, courage, and strength, and to succeed and move forward in times of adversity. And we're glad to be here. She said it all. I don't know what else there is to say. Yeah, I know. I know. We could just kind of... It's nice. nice. But no, then they would never see tomorrow, and that would be a loss. No, no. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. As far as I'm concerned, this is a prime time for us to talk about new ways to be in spite of crisis, difficulty, pain, and suffering. And we happen to know an awful lot of people like ourselves that are on the front lines and their whole calling, we call it calling, our career, is based on dealing with the struggle and suffering and pain, helping others through some very difficult times, and facing death and dying and sickness very serious. And yet, what we're really interested in is, how do they take care of themselves? How do they sustain themselves and stay so resilient? Because they're a great example of living this extraordinary reality that's an example to all of us um, who are now facing the same kinds, really, you're facing an extraordinary reality. It's an ongoing crisis, and there's so much that keeps being added to it all the time. Um, so I, I think that we're, we're hoping, anyway, that we are inspiring you. And I, I'll tell you the truth, these things inspire me. And um, we have a very special uh, conversation today with a very special woman. Her name is Tamar Alexis Woon. Woon. I just call her Tamar. But anyway, she's been caring for my mother, my 95-year-old mother in Florida, who I love. And um, I wish I could be there with her, but right now we're taking care of my wife. So I'm really dependent on people, and I really pay attention to the quality of the caregivers, not just their educational background, but the kind of people they are. My mother happens to be surrounded by some incredible people, and they keep me in the, they keep me going with it. They fill me in on what's going on, they talk to me, they send me pictures, I talk to my mother. Um, it's wonderful, but Tamar is a very outstanding young woman, and she's an incredible hospice nurse. I've seen her in action, um, she's an astounding woman, she brings such love and joy and care and expertise um, to the elderly who are facing the end of their lives. Tamar is exceptional, as you will see. And we talked to her about her work, about her life. Um, she'll fill you in on that. She's got an incredible background. She went into the military when she was 16 years old. Yep, she joined the um, Army. Yep, 
and she started there and, and her whole career developed in the service. Um, she was a senior in high school and she was, I guess she was looking for some adventure. But anyway, yeah. she went in the service and from there, her education, her experience, all of that has developed to the point now where she is a very, very special hospice nurse for an organization in Florida called, South Florida called v Vitas. Vitas. Mm, Vitas. Her whole team are friends of mine, and they are incredible people. Social worker Michael is a wonderful man. They have a, a chaplain, chaplain. Mm -hmm. on, it was Stephen, who is a, I don't know what it is. He used to be a, a Catholic priest, I think. And mm -hmm. I don't think he's doing, he doesn't see himself as that anymore. But he's an ordained Catholic priest. But um, as he says, your mom is not exactly open to that. Well, <laughs> and knowing my mother, he's not kidding. We'll see. Yeah, one of the things that, that we enjoy is uh, Tamar will send you texts with pictures and videos uh, of her visits with Pauline. My mother. And uh, <clears throat> Peter's mother. And um, some days Peter's mom is feeling not so good. And other days she is on top of it. And she has lots of great things to say. And I think if we have a chance, we'll share some of that with you. But Tamara is beautiful, and what really comes through is how much she genuinely cares and um, is uh, wanting to share uh, with Peter because she knows Peter can't get to Florida. And she wants him to feel connected. She wants Pauline to feel connected to Peter. And she goes out of her way to make sure that happens. And she enjoys it. And she, she enjoys, enjoys it. it. Yeah, That's, and that comes through too. As you'll, we'll get some videos of my mother, and she's 95. Yeah. She used to, in her younger years, was absolutely ravishingly beautiful. And you'll see, I, I think we ought to play one of these videos that Tamar sends us. We all get a kick, all our staff, because my mother gets into her makeup and she looks at herself and she says, That's not me. I don't look like that. And I don't, I think my makeup, I need a little bit more, whatever. She's funny. Yeah. And um, she thinks she's much younger than she is. She does, and what's wrong with that? But anyway, tomorrow jokes with her, and, and uh, you'll yeah. see. You but anyway, we want to run this. We do, and you're going to love it. And we'll be back after you've seen uh, our recorded conversation, and we'll have some things to say. Okay. Were you always a nurse? I mean, when did you start being a nurse? For I was 19 when I got my nursing license. So really? wow. I actually enlisted in the military. I was in the Army. And hey, you could be part of our nonprofit. It's for military. Okay. <laughs> you were in military, yeah. huh? Yeah, right out of high school. I just wanted to get away from home. I literally joined the military. My brother was in the military. I had cousins in the military, and they liked it. And I didn't want to stay home for college. I just wanted to go somewhere. And, my, and I was literally still 16 when I went into the military because I was a senior in high school at that time. It was 1996. At the time, you could be a senior in high school, ready to graduate and enlist in the military, like be enlisted and start getting paid and everything, go to your drills or whatever. Wow. So that's what, what I did. What branch? <laughs> what branch? Army, Army Reserves. Uh, so. you to the Reserves? I was yeah. in the military. Uh, where were we stationed at first, the first part? I went to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri. For oh, you a did? Okay. And then I went to Fort Sam Houston in Texas oh, for right. my EIT. And that's how I did my you, nursing. You did AIT? Yeah. Oh, I did. So, good, good. Yeah. So I, I was a 91 Charlie, which I know they changed the MOS now. It's something different. So I had to do my EMT first, and then I could do my nursing. So I basically got, you know, I, be, I was paid to become a nurse, which I love. 
And I went to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in DC and I did the rest of my training there and actually got a job there afterwards and worked in pediatrics, um, med surge and neuro and all those different units. So that's how I started neuro nursing. I started as an LPN and then from there I got my RN. So I've been an RN six years now. Okay, now I'm more impressed. Anyway, I want to hear what Jenny's, just don't get tensed. I just want to hear it myself. <laughs> okay, tell me what's one of the questions. Well, the first, the first one you already got started on. And that, uh, you were telling us how you got to be a nurse. Right. But, but I, I, we would like to know what drew you to working for hospice? How Honestly, it's, it's something that pretty much, it did fall into my lap. I, I always worked with hospice nurses. Um, I worked in many facilities. I've pretty much done everything nursing that you can think of. So I've always interacted with hospice nurses. Um, I didn't understand it too much at the time, you know, as an LPN, you kind of just, there. I know they're managing the care and they tell you to give them medications and they tell you to do this and do that and you just do what they tell you to do. Mm -hmm. But uh, last two years ago, two Januarys ago, my little sister was, she got really, really sick. So she's my younger sister. She, we don't know really, really what happened to her. She took some medication. She went to a doctor because she thought she had a UTI. She took some antibiotics. About two weeks after taking it, she started having severe pain. So she's my stepsister. So her mom took her to the ER. They live in Orlando. Took her to the ER. Um, her labs were really off. Everything was just shutting down. Her liver shut down. Her kidney shut down. She ended up in ICU. She had... Um, cardiac arrest they had to do cpr on her like two times i mean it was just bizarre the whole situation she was in icu two months and it was a saturday that i woke up and i told my husband and my girls i said i need to go see my sister let's just go now so we went there literally and all this time like i'm talking to my other sister because i have another sister who's the youngest um who lives with her and she's not really given me the information. She's never told me that her heart had stopped, that she's not responsive. That morning, my parents, my dad and her, her mom, my stepmom, signed a DNR. I had no idea what was going on. They just kept me out the loop altogether, but I just knew I had to get up there. So by the time I got up there, my little sister was telling me you know, that she wanted to bring Tommy, we call her Tommy, she wanted to bring her home. That they, The doctor says they, they can't do anything more for her, that she's going to die period. Her liver's gone. Her kidneys are done. She, nothing's functioning. She was swollen. She was retaining fluids. It was a mess. And they had no precise diagnosis besides the fact that she was dying. So um, at that point, I knew about hospice because I literally was leaving. I used to do corrections for 14 years. And then I went to hospice because I had worked as an um, after-hours hospice nurse on call while I was doing corrections, but it was something that I wanted to do full-time because a job was offered to me full-time Monday through Friday and the weekends and, and stuff off. So I wanted to do that, but I was telling my sister, I don't understand what's going on, but the doctor says she's dying. How come they didn't offer you to put her on hospice and get her home and she could be at home or whatever. But anyways, that same day that we went up there, she ended up dying at 11 something at night. That same exact thing. She, she passed away. And I went in there because, you know, the kids are with me and my husband. So we're kind of in the, the family waiting area, hanging out. We're just there 
being supportive. My dad and my stepmom were in the room with my little sister and some people from church and everything. So we gave them their space, but I went in to check on everybody. And I remember exactly 1114, I'm talking to her, I'm holding her hand and she stops breathing and her heart, her heart stops because uh, I was watching the monitor and it just flatlined. And I'm looking at everybody like, what's going on? How come there's no code being called? Because I still didn't know. They didn't that they, anyways. So that really pushed me to understand the dying process and to be part of the hospice. It was bizarre because literally maybe a week before all of this, I had accepted the job, but I haven't, I didn't, as far as hospice nurse, but I didn't um, start yet. So I was just doing the, you know, on-call night shift and it's only like one or two calls that you get in the evening you just go and deal with symptom management and then you let the the regular team follow up the next day so i was doing that but i wasn't i didn't have my own patients my own caseload where i know the family and i know the patient and what they're dealing with i was just managing symptoms if there was something going on mm-hmm. i think after that i was just really more into understanding hospice and the dying process and everything but I don't know, like I said, I, I really wasn't looking <laughs> to be a hospice nurse. I kind of just ended up being a hospice nurse for some reason. And I love, absolutely love what I do. I love my patients. I love talking to the families. I love interacting with them. I love being with them, just visiting with them. Because sometimes I just need somebody sitting with them. Absolutely. I do the nails. I do their hair. I Just time. It's, you need to really have a lot of patience and time. And they need that. Because especially now, with no visitors, it's, it's horrible. It breaks my heart when you see them sitting in the room by themselves and you just, so anyways, that's how I came to be a hospice nurse. <laughs> you know what? Most of the people that we know are gifted hospice, not hospice uh, personnel are different than regular medical personnel. Their whole outlook is different. Mm-hmm. Everybody that we work with at hospice here, the, very, the people we work with, they're like part of our team. They're wonderful. They're like you. But every one of us have had trauma in our pasts. Mm. and every one of us had our own pain and from that pain and from the losses it brings us to a place of some kind of deeper empathy and understanding through our own pain for a process that most people avoid like it's the end of everything and we're the opposite we're drawn in and we go in it and and address it and engage with it i've always been like that but most Mm. of the people that i know that are dealing with things that we do the same way. You're the same way. And they have a different outlook on medicine and and they know a lot about the medical, but they have an outlook where sometimes healing the symptoms just isn't enough. And we're gonna be dealing with the difficult process of loving people and nurturing and caring for them during a very difficult time in life. Um, We find that it brings us to a much more real place um, I've been a clinician for a long time. And interestingly, um, one of the things I found with that, it has a lot of stigma attached to it. And people yeah. were relating to me like who I am. And when I started working with the Navy SEALs, wounded Navy SEALs that had come to us and traumatized, I could see right away they didn't want to be considered mentally sick. They didn't want to, and they couldn't, that they don't like that. And, you know, I agreed with them. I said, you're right. And don't get into my being a psychologist, um, Peter. And that was hard for them to accept. But the truth is through the years, particularly since Lynn has been sick, a lot of that stuff I've just cast off. And I don't let the clinical 
part of me, which I minimize now, not that it's not in me, but I don't let that be the barrier between me and my fellow man. And I found that dealing with people who are dying and deeply, very sick and whatever, what's most important is to be a human being that can come alongside them to do, if not clinical, to do their nails, to make them comfortable, to exchange, have a, uh, the energy exchange is so loving and nurturing and positive. And um, we feel that we're, we've, we come to that too. I was just telling Jenny, as good as she is at this, now that her dad is so sick and it means a lot to her, I could see the depth of her, and she engages plenty, is changing already to something even more personal and sweet. But it's coming from her pain. And um, I know that that's happened with me and I've dealt with a lot of sickness and a lot of trauma. But now that Lynn has <coughs> been so ill and we've gone through, we keep going through, we're going through this. I've become so grateful and appreciative for the little things in life. I was always a guy that had the big stuff. And now if she's breathing and she can say a word or she wakes up in the morning and I can go in there and she's, she's alive, that makes my day. And when I see things like that, to me, that's precious. Now, I can't really say I had that depth of appreciation and gratitude before. Most of the people that I know in hospice that are the gifted folks have the same thing. They just understand life to the end much better than most medical people, to be honest with you. Even though they may know all the clinical, there's more to them than that. Now, you're one of them, to be honest with you. So is Michael, that, uh, by the way. Um, yeah, no question about it. So that's the way we are. And we have people all over the world. And when I say a lot, I don't mean a lot. I mean, individuals that we've known that are just like us. And even if I don't talk to them for two or three years, and I need something, I can call them. And it's like, they're instantly right there. We're friends. And we're all caring people. And this is goes from command and Navy SEALs to Marines to anything. But they're personal friends, and they care a lot. They're different. And it's like a big network, and I love it. They're just like you. I mean, that's the truth. They're just in different per parts of life, but they have the same attitudes, the same way of caring and, and, and appreciating people in life. It's different. They're different. And you're like that. Michael's like that. Um, so we. Um, what's another question? What do you got? Well, the next one could be, and you already said a little bit about this tomorrow, but what are some of the the really rewarding, fulfilling things about what you do and what are some of the more difficult things? Hmm. Rewarding, I just love interacting with the patient. It's not, even though me and the other nurses on the team complain about the paperwork, <laughs> but spending time with the patient is my favorite thing to do. So I go to into the facility early, and I'm there until the afternoon and I go to, I only have to see six patients a day, but everybody has their own scheduled time. So everybody is on a schedule as far as when I see them. Some of them are more than once a week that I go visit with them. And I just spend time with them. I make sure I look them over and I do, you know, the basic nursing stuff, but then we'll watch TV and I have my little kit with my nail stuff or <laughs> I, bring, I, bring, yes. I bring hair clips for them. And put Oh, no, 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 we, we get it. We get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're like my little baby dolls. So, because I've seen yeah. action. you are right on. And oh. we appreciate that. We know how valuable and precious that is. 
Yeah, it's it's important to be to give them the, the time. You know, just the interaction is so important for the spirit, for the soul. So I think that's the rewarding part. And there's no time limit either. Like with when I was in the hospital or nursing home, you have an eight-hour shift, and it's hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, because you want to make sure you get home in eight hours to your family. But with this position, why I love it so much, because trust me, I don't get paid half as much as I used to with my other job, but I love the time that I get to make. You know, it's all about me scheduling them, and then I take my time with them. I can spend two hours with them, one hour. I can spend as much time as I want with my patients, as long as they get seen, you know, and I, I do my basic stuff. But and then the rest of the time is just fun stuff, <laughs> which Lord, I can never do in a hospital. I wish you were out here. I wish you were out here working with Aww. us. Yeah. We, could, we could introduce you to the hospice nurses just like you. And they come over here. I go with a gym and back and they're still here hanging out with um, yeah. Lynn and everybody. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> yeah. And they have to, they take the time. Right. They're wonderful clinicians, but that's not their main thing. Right. And you're the same way. That's so awesome. I love, that. I love doing that. So that's the rewarding part of being a hospice nurse, just managing uh, a patient's case. and. Okay, the, I got another part to it. That's not the, uh -huh. What do you find to be what you would consider difficult for you to deal with as a hospital? Oh, you know what's difficult is to see them declining, to actually see the change when they're when they're ready to to pass away. Like I had a patient recently who was awake, alert, smiling, and he would eat for you. He wasn't, you know, he was confused and he wasn't um couldn't talk too much, but he made eye contact and he smile so he can show that his gratitude and he loved your, your presence and then when they change and then they stop eating and they get weaker and lethargic and, and they don't open their eyes anymore and they're just there breathing that's the hard part seeing that change because it's like oh last week he was awake and and smiling at me and talking with me and now this week it's, and it goes really fast and I noticed that my patients that have like some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's, those are the patients that go faster than my other patients, like than the CHF or the COPD or really? cancer. Yeah, the, always the dementia patients seem to just decline really fast. When the decline happens, it happens quickly. Really? So, yeah. But, um, you know, we know I that that's the hardest part for me. It is hard. And yeah. I, you know, I, I know about it. And yet that's the part. I'm not afraid of any of this. I deal with this part of my life. That is what I dread about then. And I, I know that's going to come. And that's wow. the part I'm scared about, that she's not here. So I, I think about that. But we do know, and she was just crying about it last night with her dad because it's happening yeah. so fast. So right. Yeah. So she's, she was upset last night. Everybody here, we do, you know, we give to everybody room to deal with their emotions because this stuff definitely hits our hearts in core because we care. And so do you. We had, we also make sure that people know you better as caregivers, know how to take care of that emotional stuff that's building up in you, um, and how it's affecting your body. And that's what we help them deal with. And then we get it, we purge it, and then they can go back refreshed. Otherwise, it has a cumulative effect, and all of a sudden you're not so nurturing anymore, and you're emotionally tired, and whatever. Yeah, and we, yeah. you know, we've seen a lot of that. I have a question, Mom. Um, with all the with all the uh, commitment and love that you have and the and the kind of work that you do how does that affect your relationship with your husband how's that how does this affect him oh you know what 
I can come home and talk about my day with my husband. He's a good listener. Very good listener. All right. So, and then he actually, he has, he's really good at giving advice. So like if something's bothering me, he will always steer me away from being frustrated and upset or whatever. But um, he's just there as a good support. You know, it doesn't really affect him. He's, he's a very strong minded individual. So it doesn't affect him as far as much as it affects me. And he, he brings me back to my calm. So, so like, we're totally yin and yang. So he helps <laughs> you shift. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we talk about how important that really is. Because right. sometimes we need other people to shift us. Right. And that's why we love teams. Yes. What do you love? What do you do to take care of yourself? To be honest. Yeah. That's a good start. <laughs> yeah. To be I mean... Okay, so my regular day is work, home, and then everything with the family. So my daughter does gymnastics. She's on the gymnastics team. So three hours a day, she has to be training. So I'm there usually for the whole three hours sometimes. Sometimes I'll run back and forth. But And then dinner. I mean, I feel like there's so much that I give. As far as time for me, the only time that I'm like super chill and happy is when I'm just sitting down reading. And uh, to be honest with you, I read my Bible more than anything. So, like, my husband likes to come home, and he we do a nightcap every night, and he likes to watch his little whatever show. <laughs> so he likes to watch his particular shows, and we'll watch the show together, whatever. But for my time, I'm so in my zone when I'm reading or doing, like, a study online. Like, there's a, a particular YouTube page that, I, that has different segments, and I study that, and I look up. Bible verses and that's that's what I love to do and then I share that with my husband and I share it with my daughters because we do Bible study every night and that's what lifts me up like I feel so good doing that and I love sharing information and sometimes not even biblical stuff it's just information in general I just like teaching and letting them know this is what's going on or current affairs or something this is what I saw in the news and as long as I'm teaching somebody something or bringing information to the family that will be useful to them I feel good so I don't really do much else. I used to get my nails done. I don't even bother. No, 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 no. The nail, the <laughs> hair. Come on, no, don't I give don't. me that. I'm looking at a beautiful no. woman. Don't, uh, no, sorry. No. You know what we I do all this stuff out. I don't even go anywhere anymore yeah. to do it. I just you know, I tell the ladies, you know what, really, what I tell them here is it's okay to be vain. <laughs> I mean, I paint my own nails now. I used to get, I, for, since I was 17, I had acrylic nails. The only time I didn't have it was in the military. But ever since that, Always had my nails done. I haven't done them since we've been on lockdown. Really don't care. Thank you. None of the, these things that we always could do, we can do anymore. You can see my gray hair coming in. You know, <laughs> it, it's just a different time. I, I have one more question I really would like to ask, and I'd like to give you a chance to share something that you've learned in caring for people at the end of life that you think would be valuable for everybody to know. Something that is is important that you could share. Um, one thing that I think is important. Well, a couple of things. Uh, I think it's important for families to look into hospice services before the very end. I don't procrastinate. Don't wait until patients or your family member is actively dying. You know, if, if somebody has a terminal illness and you know that you 
want the, your family member to be comfortable, to be safe, you're no longer interested in, in, in aggressively treating anything or whatever. Just, it's not that you're giving up, you know, because you put your family member on hospice, it's not giving up on them. It's, there's a whole team that's there to support you during this phase. And like I had mentioned before, when patients go on hospice, they end up living much longer than their prognosis. So we've had patients on hospice for years, really? not just months. Yeah. Well, Lynn's been on for years. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's spiritual with the chaplain. It's the social worker who can get you resources to things in the community and be there to support you. There's volunteers. We have the aides that come and, and take care of, and it's not like a nursing home or a facility where the aides would have to like rush, rush, rush. The aides go in and they, they bathe the patient from head to toe and wash their hair. And they, they, there's a lot of TLC oh, yeah. um, with the team, with the hospice team. And then also you get the opportunity to kind of reconciliate everything, to make sure everything's in place. There's no stress on the family. There's no stress on the patient because everything's rushed or, you know, there's no closure with anything. There's no forgiveness. You know, you don't want anyone dying with bitterness. There's time. There's time to do things when you think about giving them that hospice sooner than later. So I think that's really important. Like, don't, don't think hospice is like, oh, that's a last minute thing. It's not a last minute thing. It's, it's getting everything in place. You know, if there's a terminal illness, there's no reversing it. Just you, you need that extra support, you know, yeah. from a team like the hospice team. You're so right. I think that's important. It is important. Because we've had patients come on literally and they're pretty much already dying, you know, and they're on for like a day or two and then that's it. And the family's scrambling with funeral plans and it's 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 heartbreaking when you see that because everybody's stressed and it's not a happy time, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's, it's more stressful than... You're so right. You're Tomorrow, I hope this felt good to you because you are yeah. wonderful. And We're I done, that's it? No more questions. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you want to? Yeah, add? how about asking you, us? Or, there, or, yeah. Anything you want to ask us, or anything you want to say? Yeah. Uh, I just I I appreciate you and uh, everything that you're doing on your end with your institute. I mean, you can see the compassion that you guys have, and your your heart and your soul are are very. And you're very uh, warm and, and loving individual. And I just like, I just like your aura. And that's why I want to keep talking to you. <laughs> so We're going to talk I, more. <laughs> don't think this is the end. Are you kidding me? You're in now. Yes. You're in. Yes. You know what? I, we, got, we got lots of papers that we've written. We've written a couple lately that we've submitted to some of the newspapers to give people hope. And um, also our podcast is every week and it's televised too. Um, yeah. And this will be... We're gonna have more guests because Peter, t I t wound up talking too much, and um, frankly, <laughs> yeah, she's the host. I wind up doing all the talking. <laughs> and, um, it's a good show. <laughs> we have a lot of good friends all over the world in Africa, in uh, Singapore, in Moscow, Canada, Canada, all Australia. over. Yeah, so yeah, yeah New Zealand. So. There, we know that we're reaching people, a lot of people, yeah. and um, it means a lot to them. So it's got depth to it. It's not just a superficial, entertaining show. Mm -hmm. It's got the real meat. Um, but I know we got to lighten it up sometimes because the subject matter is heavy duty. It's, it
you've just been watching and listening to uh, a Zoom conversation that Peter and I had with Tamar Alexis Woon, uh, who is a hospice nurse in Florida and who, uh, among other wonderful patients, uh, cares for Peter's mom, Pauline. Mm -hmm. uh, real, a real angel, a real gift to to us, to our, to your, to your family. Yeah, I, I've I've watched this interview several times, and frankly, there is so much valuable information as well as this something that I really see that like in the discourse of our conversation, such very important information comes out, but it comes out in such a heartfelt, um, human way. Mm -hmm. And that's what we seek in the people that we are involved with. And um, Tamar certainly hits the mark. Uh, she loves us and she loves the work we're doing. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, but I, I, I listen to this and there's some, some very important things that she's brought up today. In her casual, lovely way, this is a hardworking lady. <clears throat> I call her a girl compared to our age she is. But she's had some tremendous experiences as a nurse, and she's really been experience-wise a full-spectrum nurse from the military all the way through to when she, I guess she came she to hospice into, a couple of years ago. She said in between there she was in corrections for 16 years. <laughs> Amazing. She's got, her, she's got quite a, a resume. But I think one of the things that I realize about it is I know nurses that are very efficient and have a lot of experience, but they lack something very important. Um, and this lady doesn't lack it. No. And that is this heartfelt caring, following a calling of, with such deep empathy and, and uh, love of her job and love of the people she serves. And uh, I've seen her in action. I know she's telling the truth. And the way she goes about it, um, being removed from the um, more classic medical model into the hospice model is she's not held to such a strict schedule and everything's not so tight and um, oriented toward um, tight hours and tight money and she has more time. She described that she has a, a certain number of people that she sees uh, but how much she spends with each of them and what she does, she has a great deal of freedom and that she really appreciates that. She does, and she's interested in the families. I can attest to that because I have a lot of in interaction with her. Um, she's very tuned into me and what we're, what we're doing here in California and with my wife and our staff. She was the first one. Wasn't she the first one that was able to do a FaceTime for you with your mom? She, well, she, I think so. Yeah. And um, she does, she's funny. And it really, it lifts our spirits at the, at the Institute because Tamar is funny. And when my mother talks, she has a way of talking Tamar kind of imitates it and talks like my mother. <laughs> she gets, a, she gets a, little, a little New York accent, New it's Jersey funny. accent yeah, going. And actually, she's yeah. Haitian, but you'd never know it. Um, and she's funny. She picks up my mother's way of relating, and she mm -hmm. does it too. Yeah. But very cute. <coughs> and she really encourages my mom and um, supports her and loves her and uh, does everything she can to keep my mother connected with her loved ones. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Tamar is a great bridge from the heart and from the spirit. This is a lady who is a Christian. This is a lady who follows a calling that God has put placed in her life. 
Um, it, it lifts her up to read the Bible. It lifts her up to understand the spiritual side of all of this better. Um, and I, we do it too. But to hear how she does it and to hear how important it is to her, um, that's one of her most important self-care mm -hmm. um, kinds of things that she does. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was interesting when, when we asked her about what she did for self-care. And um, what she talked about had a lot to do with giving to her family. She's got a beautiful family. She really yeah. does. She's yeah. got dogs. She loves dogs. But she's got an incredible younger daughter, and then she's got an older daughter. Little Latanya is her older daughter. Yeah. And Ma and Michaela her, is her, and her younger, younger daughter. Mike, Michael is, uh, I guess she's a gymnast in training, serious training. Yeah. This girl is loaded with personality. What is she, eight or nine years? Yes, she she wanted she was part of the call. We didn't show that part. Oh, we did. Uh, no, a, but Michaela was part of it. Michaela and her new puppy were, were part of the call. She is adorable and really full of life. Really uh, photogenic and really engaging. She's a doll. Yeah. And I know that um, as far as Tamark is concerned, her her the way she shifts from the burdens of work to something else is she really focuses on her family and I, I noticed that when we were doing the interviews if there were things going on with the family we would lose her a little bit because she focuses she knew a, she had she was aware of what was happening she with her, has with her she daughters. pays attention yeah. and to her that feeds her mm -hmm. she's a great mom and uh yeah and <laughs> she's cute tomorrow's beautiful i still can't get over it when i look at her and i know what she is yeah. amazing and just a lovely human being and, uh, and she talks about also how important her husband is. He's not anywhere near this kind of work. He has his own kind of work. He's a mechanic. He's a mechanic, but he has yeah. a diesel mechanic. But he has, as she says, he's, he's a great listener. Uh, he's very supportive. And uh, he helps her shift from the burdens of her work. And what, there's plenty of burden. Um, especially when you're an empathic type of person like she is. Mm -hmm. And we are certainly touched by dying and death and sickness, we can't get away from it. And which at times we need, we need someone to help us shift out of it because we are dealing with an extraordinary reality. Um, we live it. That's what happened with Tamar, that yeah. when she had the experience of being with her sister, uh, when her sister died, where she went from that was to go deeper in and to help people. And she had been a nurse a long time. Been a nurse a long time. And, and that's the other thing that comes through, is that the way she sees the people she works with are people. They're mothers and fathers and, and friends and uh, relatives. And they're not patients. They're not mm -mm. Uh, a group of symptoms. They are people who she wants to care for with respect and dignity at the end of their lives. And she has a way of diffusing the stigma of these folks feeling like they're being treated like objects and patients, like a typical medical model. Mm -hmm. She diffuses that and treats them so lovingly and heartfelt. And that classic training, particularly the medical training, the barriers between the patient and the client. Mm -hmm. Well, I've watched tomorrow in action. <laughs> if there's a barrier, I don't know where it is. No, I think that's part of what I, I think she to knows her. there is a barrier, but I gotta be honest she, with you. She knows she's professional. She yeah. knows what she can. But professional, and can't not do, in the classic sense of no. she's a professional. No, no. She's warm, loving, engaging, involved, yeah, patient and understanding. And uh, it's it's a beautiful thing to watch with all of her skill and ability.
Yeah. Her greatest skill is relating to her fellow man with love and empathy and giving, but you can tell that she receives so much by the way she gives. Mm -hmm. We understand it, we've talked about it many times, and is a great example of what we're talking about. We love her, she's another part of our network. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, and that's why we wanted to introduce her to you. We wanted you to have a chance to and hear And I think her you're gonna, words. I hope you really enjoy this, this conversation that we've had. It was, uh, it was really enjoyable. And I didn't do all the talking. No. She talks plenty. And we will have her back again oh, to definitely. talk she, plenty she, more. We, she wanted to go on, and frankly, we yeah, had to go we, back to work. We had to go back to work, but we'll do it again. She wants to come back. The Survivor's Guide to Life is made possible through a grant from Sonoma Coast Trauma Treatment, a 501c3 public charity that relies entirely on donations from people like you. And we hope that uh, what we brought you, to you today, what you've heard, has been of great benefit, and that you'll consider donating to Sonoma Coast Trauma Treatment at sctraumatreatment.org. Uh, we, the Survivor's Guide to Life, are on Facebook and Instagram, and we have a YouTube channel. We're on all the podcast outlets, and we would love to hear from you. Uh, any feedback, any questions, please get in touch through one of those channels and let us know. Like us, share us. Uh, also, uh, you can get in touch with me. I'm Jenny at BernsteinInstitute.com. Uh, we are at 707-781-3335. And we have this wonderful little booklet that Steve created with some principles uh, that Peter has used and uh, created through the years for how to make the best of times in hard times. I'll be glad to send you a copy. So thank you for listening, and please join us again next time.